0: Corey Shaman is an MD-PhD student at the University of Utah School of Medicine and co-facilitator in the RealMD program. He has completed the first half of medical school and started the PhD portion of his degree in the fall. In this episode, we talk about his journey into medicine and how he charted his own path by building community, daily journaling, brain mapping, and pursuing hobbies. Corey, it's so good to have you on The Real MD Podcast. Thanks for being here today.
1: Yeah, happy to. Riding your bike all the way here. It's one of my strongest beliefs that biking is magic, and I I, feel it every day.
0: That's awesome. Um, I want to start out and just ask you to tell your story a little bit about what led you to medicine.
1: Yeah, I think I always wanted to be in medicine, I think I just held this really toxic belief for a long time that I wasn't smart enough to do it. And I think it took a lot, a a series of life events for me to understand that that's a false belief for everyone, including myself.
0: Do you want to share maybe what kind of life events led you that way?
1: Yeah, I lived in this 10-person house in Portland, Oregon. It was a two kitchen sort of deal and I found it on Craigslist as I think you have to find any 10 person house that way. And that the house was special, it was called the study house. There was, um, there was a patient who had uh, an, a form of a very tough to treat cancer in Portland before my time and got great care at Oregon Health and Science University. And his way of giving back was to buy up property near the hospital and to rent it to people in the health profession, students, um, nurses, et cetera, for really, really cheap. And so that's how I ended up in this house with a bunch of people in all areas of medicine. There were dental students and PA students and nursing students. And I was just there doing a research internship for the summer, and it was really living with all of these, uh, all of these students, including med students, and realizing, oh, there's no difference between them and me. If if I wanted to do this path, I could. Um, and so I think it was really being surrounded by people who had also held that belief and figured out how to get over it that helped me find my way through those toxic thoughts.
0: Yeah. I love that Um, particularly you've talked about this many times finding community seems to be a big piece of how you've navigated your path
1: Um, so what was this community like yeah it was interesting in that it was people from all over the country who ended up in this house and everyone was you know occupationally related but Aside from that, it was a bunch of different types of people. Um, this was my very first time ever being in Portland, Oregon, and I was of course looking for all of the stereotypes and, and found it in this cast of characters. Um, but I think the biggest thing about this community in particular, that the study house community was that everyone was kind of trapped on this hill. Um, there was not, a ton of transportation on and off the the hill and so after work we'd walk you know the five minutes home to this house and everyone would just be there together cooking big meals and and just talking about medicine and it it was very empowering to realize that I was in that community already
0: right that you belonged that you were part of it so then um fast forward a little bit and i guess i'm just curious about the md and the phd part how did you determine that that was your path
1: yeah that's a great question still figuring that out (laughs) um for me it's always been about the senses i am just a, a curious human in general but the senses hearing vision balance, touch, to me, that's like the most fundamental part of being human, because if it weren't for that, we'd be trapped in our own bodies with no way to relate to anyone else. And so when I started studying, hearing, and balance and realized that communication seems like the most fundamental human need, um, you know, outside of food and water and shelter, that's what I wanted to work on and when I started working with people who had sensory impairments and realizing how empowering it was for them to do sensory rehabilitation or to get cochlear implants and, and get some access to hearing back I was like okay th- this is my life's work now um, and it wasn't enough to just do it through clinical medicine I wanted to be Answering people's questions when the response I had to give in clinic was, we don't know yet. Um, I wanted to be able to keep going on those questions.
0: I'm curious about what happened for you behind the scenes. How did you start journaling?
1: I started on January 1st, 2012. (laughs) Very specific. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I know this because I have all of my old journals that I go back to semi-regularly. And so whenever I open that first journal, I open it to that page. And it was when I was moving back into the dorms my second semester of my freshman year of college and really trying to figure out who I was outside of just a student. Um, I think I tied a lot of my identity in high school to just being a straight A student and feeling like that was the most important thing and getting into college. And then I had this sort of devastating, but also incredibly good first semester, my freshman year at college, where I realized like school can't be my only identity because when I don't do well at it, Mm. then I feel like I've failed as a human. And so after getting a C in Gen Chem 1 and a C in Calculus and a C in a bunch of other classes that first year, um, I was like, all right, something's got to change and I need to figure out what it is that has to change. And so every day starting from, from that first day of the year, I decided to write down a page of what happened that day just to try and figure out, you know, to do, to, to do a, a system of checks and balances on my own life. Mm. Um, and that along with a bunch of other regular hobbies kind of got me mentally well again and, and ready to do school again. So that was when I started journaling. And since then I have filled out a page almost every day and they're pretty mundane you know Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like had this great conversation with Tom about barbecue (laughs) and um, you know biked to this place at this time it's it's very much almost like an agenda but I use it as a memory device because when I read back through that agenda I can kind of pull out extra details from the day even ones that I didn't write down.
0: So to outline your process, obviously you do a page, and then you're saying you go back and kind of read through it.
1: And to and me, what is the benefit of that? memory supplementation. Like I'm very – it's not something I research or, or feel like it's fundamentally important. I'm just kind of curious about it. And so – it feels like that warm nostalgia feeling every single night when I go back through and I re I flip to the beginning of that journal or pull out an old one and just read a page or two. And I'm like, Oh yeah, like that's who I used to be. And, and this is still who I am. And it kind of just keeps me grounded and lets my mind stop turning in place and lets me go to sleep because I've gotten it all out on the page for that night. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, um, Many people probably look at it as a daunting task to start writing something at the end of the day or in the morning. And yet, w- from what you're saying, it seems like that helps you sift through all the the mental spinning that happens in a day and kind of process anxieties or stresses.
1: Yeah, it doesn't for me at least. It doesn't have to be some big emotional truth that I'm writing down on the page. Simply just getting down, here's what happened today and then I don't have to think about it. At least, you know, in my dreams, I don't have to think about it. I can go on and dream about more important things. Do you feel like it helps you process big things too? Yes and no. I would say I do most of my big processing in a more relational way with other people Mm. where I still feel the need of like, Oh man, this, this was a big day for me. I need to talk it over with a friend. Um, so my journal isn't that so much for me.
0: Yeah. In addition to this journaling process and community, um, you've also talked about
1: sort of mind
0: mapping your own personal thoughts and your own values. Can you talk more about that?
1: There's this community called Quantified Self, and it's a bunch of people who like to do research projects that are N of one. Um, you know, not scientifically sound as a researcher, but still very cool projects. And there was this project I saw that's like, I have to do this for myself. There's this guy named Jerry who runs, uh, he runs his own brain online. There's a mind mapping software called The Brain. And Jerry's brain ha- is the largest collection of human thoughts outside of a physical brain anywhere in the world. You can check this out online, Jerry's brain, just Google it. Um, and so I run my own brain, which is just this mind map. And the the structure of this mind map is that you can either have a parent thought, a child thought, or a sibling thought, this, the same way any mind map works. The visualization is amazing, so it's worth it just for that. But I use this in really particular ways. I use my brain sort of as my own internal wikipedia style page where if i watch something formative like a movie that really resonates with me then i have to log this down as sort of my uh my cinematic canon or my literary canon and so i collect so one of the areas of my brain is like a bunch of formative pieces of art or literature that are essentially who i am things i've read like a piece from the new yorker on how you know dating can be compared to whether you're a dog person or a cat person there's this like great piece and (laughs) um and that gets logged in my brain as like okay this is part of who I am now and I also use it to keep track of sort of my core beliefs um you know not quite inside out style um of like core memories but these are like explicit values um for example I think, you know, one of them in there is that I, one of my core beliefs is that attention is the rarest and most sincerest form of generosity. Um, You know, I have another that's like time is our most valuable resource, another that's, you know, not all entertainment is equally productive. Um, And so I keep a list of my core values in, in my brain and then different, you know, Thought pieces or people's blogs who have com- commented on things or different things I've read that I link to these core beliefs, um, and all of this is sort of supplemental to my journaling strategy, as it's a way for me to mirror sort of the my own neural plasticity. Because if for some reason I decide this isn't important, I can just cross it out or connect the thought to something else in this internal brain and the software is intuitive to use um, free unless you want to use their you know most crazy features mm-hmm. and so I highly recommend that everyone tries it. I, I tried to use this for studying at some point because you know in medicine you're trying to force as much as you can into your actual brain so I thought I would supplement with my um, my software brain. Mm-hmm. It didn't work. I am not a mind mapping person when it comes to learning. But I think it's also kind of special that my mind map that I've built out over years and has tens of thousands of thoughts at this point is more identity based and not so much uh, not so much a, a school device.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated. We've never talked about this in detail. Um, the other day I thought how great it would be if I had a dedicated wall that um, had that dry erase coating on it so I could just start associating the books I've read with um, my values with thoughts I've been having with goals with my vision board and because I think sometimes it's overwhelming to try to connect all of these disparate ideas together you know all of this stuff is sort of independently happening and um they're meaningful uh, pieces. They could be very small, like you, as you said, journaling. You could have like a great uh, experience with someone, a meeting with someone that's, that was m- important or special or just made you feel good, and you could be reading a book and and finding a quote or, you know, setting trying to set a goal. And I just, to me, I think that's the hardest part is trying to to associate um, what's happening.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the one of the problems with these like big vision boards is that they can feel really overwhelming and you know for, for me at least when I set out to try and you know make a mind map just the the mindset that I'm in that that I have that energy to initiate it is not with me later on. Like those are special moments where I'm like i at this point in my life, you know, rare moment just found some activation energy you need to write everything down you know this is one of my smartest days of my life i have to set a plan today or else it'll be gone tomorrow and then when i go back to it tomorrow it feels really overwhelming mm-hmm. um and so i think one of the the problems that the brain deals with the software is that when you build this mind map you can only have one central thought on the screen at any given time so you everything is still there but it's out of your peripheral vision, and so you don't feel overwhelmed by mm. all of these different goals that you have. So it really helps you focus in on on the central thought. That's great.
0: I'm going to have to check out, what is it, Jerry's Brain?
1: Yeah, Jerry's Brain is the one that, that I looked at, and I was like, I need this for me. Yeah. Um, and I also think this guy, Jerry, uh, is just a, a very cool well spoken well thought person i don't know him at all yeah i wish i did yeah Sounds but i know like his character. thoughts <laughs>
0: um it brings a bigger question that um i think we've sort of danced around this whole time and that is there's a tendency in medicine because of how much is trying to be crammed in your actual brain to I think, convince ourselves that we must let go of or fill the space that would be for identity or would be for connection with other people or connection with self um, with this rapid acquiring of knowledge. I empathize and have observed uh, that pressure occurring to students. But I guess the bigger question to me is, how have you been able to still carve out space for yourself in that pressure cooker.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I find moments where I'm able to just say something has to fall off. And, you know, I think everyone, regardless of whether you're in medicine or not, has the tendency to take on a lot. And so, you know, I think when your plate gets full, it's, the, the thing is realizing, oh, this is just too much for me to do. And then you let some things fall off. And so it's in the choosing of what falls off that is really where you find or maintain your identity. And I think sort of the cultural expectation is that hobbies and relationships fall off. And I think sometimes I've been able to let school fall off and fail a test or two here or there and I'm so glad that I made that choice and so the reinforcement of like oh I let the right thing fall off on this day has has been helpful in me figuring out how I maintain my identity outside of medicine yeah yeah that's great
0: so where do hobbies fit in and how have you kept that going even when you're in medical school
1: Yeah, I think my hobbies have changed since moving to Utah. Um, I was a very big part of the Portland storytelling, um, poetry, live events scene. Um, And the the big sort of place where I found my self-confidence was in Improv 101 in Portland, Oregon. Um, And I went through a bunch of improv classes and still find that very important to my core values. Um, I started an improv class here in Salt Lake and do that from time to time, but not nearly as much anymore because I spend much more time outdoors, which is also great. So when
0: you came here outdoors, wasn't necessarily part of what you were doing?
1: No. You know, I I grew up for the first 22 years of my life in Illinois and didn't really discover what a mountain was until age 22. (laughs) Um And so at that point, you know, moving to Portland and seeing Mount Hood kind of towering above everything else, that was my first big pull to the mountains. And then realizing what it's like to actually live in the mountains, as I feel like we do in Salt Lake City, it just feels like multiple times a week I I need to, to get above it all and look down and get some sweeping views.
0: Yeah, I hear a lot of students saying that. I think outdoor opportunities are obviously abundant here. Um, Storytelling and improv. Was that a spontaneous thing that you started doing, or what led to you starting to do that? I
1: had a friend, Robin Weiss, that I grew up with, and they were always really into the Moth podcast, going to live events, and they brought me to a live event in Chicago and it was right as I was leaving Chicago and I was blown away by the power of just everyday people getting up and telling a five minute true story on some theme and it was kind of the most terrifying thing I thought I could do at the time And so to build that confidence, I kind of pushed myself to get up and have some big flop moments on stage in front of a couple hundred people, telling some stories that were critically important to me, but just didn't seem to resonate with anyone else. And after doing that a few times, I found out that even though I still don't think I can get a story to resonate with 200 people in a live event, it helps me tell a five-minute story to to the important people in my life here and there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you had, so you said you actually had some moments flopping in front of a large, in front of large groups?
1: Yeah, there, I don't remember what the theme was, but it was right after I'd moved to Portland, and they had an iteration of The Moth live storytelling event, and I got up and I told this story about borrowing my neighbor's dump truck and not knowing how to use a dump truck whatsoever, and for some reason, like this feels like a pivotal moment in my life because it really was about me and my dad trying to figure out something that neither of us understood and just a series of events that continued to go wrong. And I, I, I wish that I had a good version of this dump truck story to tell. And, and the, the the climax of the story was we pulled a lever on the dump truck, expecting it to, like, dump some stuff out. And instead, the, like, entire back of the truck just, like, dropped to the ground. And it was, like, a couple tons of metal falling, like, maybe mm-hmm. millimeters from our feet. And we, like, looked at each other and we were like, holy crap. Like, we almost just both lost the ability to walk from pulling this one lever. And it was just one of those moments that it felt, s- like, this big sweeping story waiting to happen in my mind for so long and it still hasn't come to fruition. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'm intrigued by this
0: idea of doing something that's really scary that's um, new and then almost going in knowing I'm going, to, I'm going to likely fail in front of people publicly and having that sort of galvanize something in you. And it sounds like it did.
1: Yeah, I think that that opened up the ability for me to want to do improv like i think at first it was you know 95 percent anxiety and like five percent adrenaline and (laughs) as i could shift that to more of a 50 50 balance uh it's almost that that feeling of the runner's high afterward that's like holy crap i did a hard thing yeah and being able to sit back and kind of revel in what went right and what went wrong
0: yeah and so that led into improv or you were sort of doing improv and storytelling at the same time?
1: That led into improv. I had a cousin growing up who was always the favorite child and in the entire extended family, I'm the second youngest. And my, my youngest cousin, uh, Michael is out in Los Angeles teaching improv and writing musicals and be, being the favorite cousin. And I, I that's an exaggeration, I know, <laughs> um, But his success uh, kind of galvanized me. That's like, all right, I'm not going to be as good as Michael at this, but I'm going to try because I want to be able to connect to my cousin on this level. And so I went and took a few improv classes, and it reminded me of just being a child again in that like, it's playing pretend for a long time with a bunch of people whose sole interest is just playing pretend for that amount of time. And there's just something so fundamentally human about having fun. And I think that that was the first group of people where everyone was there just to have fun in the moment. And I want to capture that feeling 100% of the time.
0: Yeah, I think adults forget to play and um i was even reading something about how that is um in the sort of burnout elements that mm-hmm. that we forget to have fun we forget to play forget to create space for that so i appreciate that a lot um let's talk a little bit about real md you're a facilitator in real md you're the the first uh md phd who's a part of the program um what has RealMD, what has the RealMD experience been like for you?
1: Overall, the value I get out of it is intellectual conversations about connection. I think fundamentally, you know, RealMD can be viewed a lot of different ways. It can be viewed as networking, leadership, professional development. But fundamentally, I think what I've seen the program try to do is just connect people To their human roots Um, and I've gotten a lot of value out of that myself and I think for anyone willing to be a little bit vulnerable and and try and find some community RealMD is an incredible space to find that
0: yeah I think sometimes we think RealMD has to be this big thing has to be this it's my professional development opportunity. It's my leadership development opportunity. It's it's something um, that is meant to sort of give me a, um, an additional skill set. And I guess you're pushing against that, and you're saying on a very basic level, it's about being human and remembering how to connect with people.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's about showing up. I think every like magical moment in my life where I've somehow gotten an opportunity or a door has opened, it's because I've just randomly decided on that day to show up to something small. And I think the the power of just being present and, and showing up to something small cannot be overstated. And I think RealMD provides a ton of really small moments where people can choose on any given day to show up or not show up. But if, if you do choose to show up, I think there's there's magic in that.
0: Do you feel like those little moments um, accumulate in a way that is is unique for you? Do you feel like there's something happening there?
1: I think when you show up the first time and you meet some new people and you hear some stories and you might think, okay, I'm, I'm glad I came. I needed to hear this today. And when you show up the second time, it's the same people, similar people still there, and you start to form a little, you know, connection or some community with with someone else that you might not have known all that well. Maybe it's a faculty member, a fellow student that you're sitting next to, maybe it's yourself. And then the third time, okay, now you have a routine of showing up and you're kind of expected in that community. And that's a cool thing because now when you don't show up, people are wondering, oh, where is this person who's part of my community and it's the, the the small moments that build that you don't realize oh this is somewhere i belong and this is a, a fundamental human thing the need to belong and so i think RealMD provides a ton of small moments to just show up and be part of a community yeah
0: i really like that what advice would you give to students that are earlier in their training.
1: I think everyone knows themselves better than anyone else possibly could. And I think if you just try and seek out ways to spend your time that align with who you are, that's what's worked for me.